As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, by the power of your spirit, come and fill our hearts with your peace. Guide us in your way of peace. Teach us how to faithfully follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we continue our journey with the Israelites in the book of Exodus uh, for our sermon series on decluttering. Today we catch up with the people in Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 14, not long after they have left their homes in the middle of the night to escape from Egypt. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back. And there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone. And let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to keep still. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The acclaimed Broadway musical Hadestown retells the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice who meet and fall in love. They live together happily for a short time, but then caught outside in the winter without adequate food or shelter, Eurydice dies and goes to the underworld, which is ruled by the ruthless god Hades. Heartbroken, Orpheus travels to the underworld to rescue her. After Orpheus entices Hades with his music, Hades agrees to let the lovers return to the land of the living but there's a catch. They have to travel there separately, with Orpheus in front and Eurydice walking behind. If Orpheus looks back even once to make sure Eurydice is there, she will be consigned to the underworld forever. The god Hermes, who is a kind of mentor to Orpheus, warns him what will be so hard about this solo journey. The meanest dog you'll ever meet. He ain't the hound dog in the street. He bears some teeth and tears some skin, but brother, that's the worst of him. The dog you really got to dread is the one that howls inside your head. It's him whose howling drives men mad and a mind to its undoing. Indeed, As soon as he sets out on his journey, Orpheus is overcome with doubt. Who am I 
he sings, who do I think I am? Who am I to think she would follow me into the cold and dark again? Why would Hades let me win? Why would he let her go? Who am I to think that he wouldn't deceive me just to make me leave alone? It is that doubt howling in his head like a mean dog that makes Orpheus's journey so hard. Almost as soon as they leave Egypt, the Hebrews are overcome with doubt, justifiably. Right after Pharaoh lets them go, he regrets his decision and then pursues them with his whole army in tow, more than 600 horses and chariots. That is what the Hebrews see when they look back over their shoulders. So who could blame them for being terrified and turning on Moses? How could he have led them out of Egypt just to die at the hands of Pharaoh's army? Wouldn't it have been better if they had just stayed, yes, confined to a life of slavery, but also a life of predictability and a certain kind of security? This gnawing, howling doubt is especially potent for us in liminal spaces. Those moments when we hover between the known past and the unknown future. Doubt sets in when what is comfortable and familiar is stripped away, even if that happens because of choices we willingly make, like leaving home to go to college, or moving to start a new job, or coming out as gay or trans, or getting married, or getting divorced, or becoming a parent, or starting a business. We collectively experience this kind of liminal season in March of 2020, when the pandemic set in and schools were canceled and all but essential workers were advised to stay at home. Do you remember what it was like then to go to the store? Wearing masks and keeping your distance from everyone, not knowing whether the most basic items on your list would be in stock? To deal with the discomfort of doubt and fear of the unknown, we tend to seek out security and comfort. This is how doubt and fear creates spiritual and emotional clutter that builds up in our lives and causes us to get stuck. Last week, we began this sermon series on decluttering by acknowledging that there is more to clutter than the things that fill our closets or our devices. Our lives can also become cluttered with the daily rituals and practices we adopt to feel more secure in the face of doubt and fear. These practices, which in reasonable doses can be neutral or even positive, have a way of becoming coping mechanisms at best and addictions at worst. The ways we consume news, caffeine and alcohol, or compulsively shop, game, exercise, organize, or scroll through our feeds. Any of these things, when used to numb difficult feelings, can become clutter that prevents us from living from the place of faith and freedom 
God desires for us. When the Hebrews were overwhelmed with fear and doubt following their departure from Egypt, they chastised Moses for freeing them from a life of enslavement. In response, Moses has some advice. Do not be afraid, he tells them. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will accomplish for you. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Don't panic. Stand firm. Hold still. Don't distract yourself and look away. Don't react in anger or fear. Pay attention to God who's working on your behalf. Wait and watch. What happens next is in God's hands. Of course, keeping still is the hardest thing in the world Moses could ask the Hebrews to do in that moment when Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. Likewise, it is tempting for us to reject Moses' advice out of hand. After all, the problems in our world are urgent and serious. Horrific violence between Israel and Hamas that has broken our hearts and gets worse every day. In our own country, another mass shooting and intractable inequalities in housing and education that confound our efforts to solve them. How could we possibly think the best thing to do at a time like this is stand still and wait for God to act? In an online article this week, our parish associate, the Reverend Mark Ramsey, reflected on the limitations of standard self-care advice. He writes, Google self-care and you'll get a cornucopia of advice. Eat right exercise right, relax right, sleep right. Nothing to argue with there. Reserve family time, protect privacy, clarify expectations, build friendships, seek help. Yes. Learn a new hobby, schedule downtime, make friends, find a counselor, laugh. A solid set of ideas. He continues, each of these suggestions is potentially helpful and worthy of consideration. The problem is that each places self-care, well, with the self. Conspicuously absent, God. The person of Jesus Christ, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What happens too often is that well-intentioned attempts at self-care turn into a shield rather than an invitation by God to rest in God. The realities of grief and fear and trauma in our lives and in our world are simply too much for our souls to continually bear. One way or another, we have to find ways to cope. In such a moment, Moses reminds the people that running back to the things that enslaved us is not self-care. Even if in a moment of doubt and fear, it feels like it. True self-care is an invitation to stop, keep still, and watch 
trusting that God will act on behalf of the world and the people God so loves, including every one of us. When was the last time you set aside the distractions of life and kept still? When was the last time you paid close enough attention to the world around you that if only for a moment you felt the presence and comfort of the Holy Spirit? When was the last time you stayed with your doubt and fear long enough for your soul to become decluttered? More than 16 years ago, in a birthing class of all places, I was introduced to mindfulness meditation. I was newly pregnant with child number two and already feeling inadequate and overwhelmed as I tried to parent a toddler and prepare to add a newborn into the mix. Our teacher, a midwife and a devoted student of mindfulness meditation, taught us some basic mindfulness exercises and advised us to spend some time each day in silence, doing nothing more than noticing each breath, each inhale and each exhale. So for a week, I begrudgingly gave up a few minutes of me time during my toddler's nap, and I was so moved by how this simple practice affected me that I began learning more about it. I quickly discovered that it was a practice grounded in contemplative traditions of numerous religions, including Christianity. The idea that I could pray by sitting in silence and resting in God's presence was a revelation to me. I had been taught that prayer was talking to God and asking things from God. Contemplative prayer is the opposite. It is simply resting in God's presence without words, surrendering to God's will and God's purpose. It is a way of doing what Moses advises, even though it is totally counterintuitive. When Pharaoh and his army are in hot pursuit, is exactly the right time to declutter your spirit, to stand firm, pay attention, and trust. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Teachers of centering prayer, contemplative prayer practice, describe this practice as consenting to the presence and action of God, of allowing God to be God and admitting that we are not in charge. It presupposes that God is always with us and already working on our behalf, and it acknowledges that we don't always recognize this. It takes practice to pay attention, to detect the often subtle movements of God's Spirit. Of course, this doesn't let us off the hook from our own faithful actions, as we see in the biblical and contemporary prophets, and certainly in the life of Jesus, contemplation and action go hand in hand. But sometimes, especially when we are in positions of power and authority, we desperately need to pause before we act or react out of doubt and fear. 
Fast forward nearly 17 years from that birthing class, and I have come to see contemplative prayer as a decluttering of my mind, heart, and soul. It is a daily practice as important to me as exercising, brushing my teeth, or wiping off the kitchen counters. This time of prayer looks and feels like I am doing nothing but sitting still. As simple as that might sound, it's probably the hardest thing I do every day. Like Orpheus's journey back from the underworld without looking back to make sure Eurydice is there. Like the Hebrews following Moses' advice to stand still and watch for God even as Pharaoh's army is gaining on them. And yet I firmly believe that without this daily practice of resting in God's love and presence and grace, I would be utterly lost. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to keep still. To start the work of spiritual decluttering, the good news is you don't have to jump into a daily practice of contemplative prayer, although everyone's welcome to join our Centering Prayer group on Zoom Thursday mornings at 8.30. You can start small. Just like if you're going to declutter your home, you can start with one closet or one room. There are many ways to practice resting in God. When you're driving and you get to a red light, you can notice your breathing while you wait. When you feel stressed, you can give yourself the grace of having a snack, taking a nap, stepping outside, and noticing the world around you. When doubt sets in about the future or regret about the past, or when the violence and division and uncertainty in our world overwhelms you, that is a perfect time to remember that you and every human being are made in the image and likeness of God, that the presence of God is always with us, and that however subtly God is acting on our behalf and inviting us to join that holy work. Our former covenant pastor, Janet Legros, worked for many years at a Quaker school. Quakers consider silence to be the most important aspect of worship, which is why every school assembly would begin with a sustained time of silence. This was hard for everyone, adults and children alike, but it was made easier by the presence of a huge jar that was filled with water and a couple of inches of sand. At the beginning of each assembly, someone would stir up the sand in the jar and place it in the front of the room where everyone could see it. As the silence deepened, the grains of sand slowly but surely settled to the bottom. Janet says that without fail, by the time the last grain of sand had settled, the feeling of peace and calm in the room was palpable. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. Amen. Amen.